starting at verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. He intended, Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by themselves, by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus 
the trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of, the Lord, the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Thanks, Ben. I'm now going to invite it to, to come forward and to, to um, preach for us. So thank you very much for joining us this morning, and I'll hand over to you. Thank you, Patrick, and good morning, everyone. Uh, I want to say thank you to those who led so far in such a powerful and uh, wonderful way, holding out the gospel and encouraging us this morning. Really appreciate it. Uh, I had lunch, my family and I had lunch a number of weeks ago with uh, friends of ours, and they, after lunch, took us for a stroll through their vegetable patch, which was a consider- considerably large kind of a vegetable patch. Uh, and one of the things that struck me was their vast array of pumpkins that were littering this whole patch. And I want to talk about that pumpkin plant a bit this morning, talk about that particular one, but it's probably true of all pumpkin plants in general, what I have to say, um, and, and how that particular pumpkin plant grew. When I asked questions about what, what, is a, what is a pumpkin plant, we'll work with that pumpkin plant this morning, but any plant really needs to effectively and successfully grow. And it's a metaphor that I want to apply to the church. In a like and similar way, what does the church, this church, church that I'm a part of, every church, what does it need to grow? I'd like to lift out, I think, five or six things out of this passage that we read and and keep your Bibles open as you look through it. As, as I work through it and I, and I just bring it to light for us. What, what does the church need to grow? That's the question. Keep it in the back of your mind. There's five things. Number one, uh, Jeff really lifted that, that out well in the kids' talk. Suffering and hardship. We know the plants need that. We know the plants often benefit from pruning. We know that it benefits from uh, taking off Uh, unwanted growth or places where we don't want it to grow and and you sort of, I'm a novice vegetable person. This year I grew seven zucchini plants. And of course that is because I bought them all in these punnets and I just didn't want to destroy any of them because I've never successfully grown anything. So, you know, when they were too many, I refused to pull any out. And in the end, I had zucchini soup coming out of our ears by the end of summer. I'll never do that again. But, but, you know, I couldn't inflict hardship on my zucchini plants because it was unbearable that I've actually grown something and why would I do it harm? And yet the truth is if my vegetable patch was to kind of really be <laughs> balanced and fruitful and healthy, I, I needed to do it some harm. Right. Loving 
consider it careful harm. This is a very difficult point to work with, and I can't go into all of it today, but the truth is that it is the same for the church, isn't it? I don't want to talk about persecution. It's a topic that we, at this point, don't know probably enough of in the place where we live. But again, as you pointed out, how many of our brothers and sisters know this horror, horror of a thing? At best, we know perhaps hardship as churches. We, we face challenges. We face tough times. We confront Satan in different ways in the place where we live. And, and, and the truth is, in some way, known only to God and his goodness and his love for us, that is used to strengthen and deepen his church. And as deep as that mystery runs, even persecution in some way grows the church. There's a wonderful story handed down by Clement of Alexandria. He's, he's, he's lived about 150, 200 years after Jesus. Uh, he hands down this story to us uh, that apparently the guy who denounced James in the Bible reading today, the guy who dubbed him in and led to his being put to death by the sword, the, 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 the guy who dubbed, who testified against him, he was so impressed by James' testimony about Christ before the authorities that as James was led to be executed, he became a Christian himself. Here's what Clement writes to us. On the way to their execution, he, this dobber, asked James for forgiveness. James looked at him and said, peace be to you, and kissed him. And so both were beheaded at the same time. Isn't that a strange twist? That right there, that 11th hour, some other person met Jesus, spends eternity with Jesus, and this weird horror of persecution led to the salvation of another person. It's weird, it's strange, and if Clement of Alexandria is true, we see it, even in James' death in persecution, that the church grew through hardship, through persecution. Alveston CRC, you'll continue to grow through hardship. You as an individual child of Jesus expect that you will grow through hardship, difficulties. That's the first thing we see. But then the story moves on. If you read then, we read from verse 4 onwards, um, Herod goes after Peter. It's Passover. Can't put Peter to death yet. So Peter was kept in prison, we read. But the church earnestly prayed for him. Gardeners need help. I was given a book. I forgot the title, but I think it's Growing Vegetables for Dummies or something like that by a family member, and I consult this thing regularly because I know as a gardener that I cannot grow anything successfully on my own. I need help. I need to talk to people. I need to call on outside external help if my plants are to grow. Uh, they need 
input good gardeners, right? I think this is what this point about prayer, which is the second thing that makes or helps the church grow, shows us. You know, I find it very fascinating that the response of the Christians in this story was prayer. I'd like you to ask yourself the question, if James was put to death on Thursday, Friday, Peter is in prison due to be undergoing trial and perhaps sentenced to death on Tuesday or Monday, I don't know what my response would be. What would your response be? What would our response be as a church? I want you to notice what they did not do. They did not meet to discuss how they're going to run the Passover services without Peter or James. They did not engage in in protest and petition and riots. They did not figure out how to keep the rest of the church and the leaders safe. Maybe, Maybe they did. They did not first and foremost invest in counselling services for the bereaved. Now, don't get me wrong, these things are important. They must be done. I'm pretty sure they were done in the story. But it's not what was handed down to us. The thing of utmost importance that was absolutely critical to their response at James's execution and Peter's arrest is, we must pray. Prayer. This, this, this is what we're going to do. And notice the things about their prayer that was very, very insightful as well. First of all, they, 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 they got together to pray. They gathered to pray. I don't know how often this is missing from the way that we pray for our own churches. We, we, we certainly pray. Maybe by way of one person to pray during a church service. Maybe at the beginning or the end of meetings. Maybe by way of prayer points in our newsletter. All of those are valid, but I think there's something different. There's something extra powerful, extra unique when a body of believers say, here is a problem. And the answer to this is that we must gather for the purpose of prayer. That is the agenda. That is the business. That is what we're doing tonight, today, this morning. We pray. Notice that this particular prayer gathering that is sort of going on in this story, the leaders weren't there. That's very insightful. It seems that the prayers that God answered and that moved all of this were the prayers of ordinary Christians because Peter rocks up at this house and he goes, go and get James and the other leaders. I don't doubt they were also praying. But they were in hiding. It's, it's this bunch of believers who come together and pray not primarily the leaders. And it seems that these prayers are particularly uh, and powerfully used in this deliverance. Speaking first and foremost to myself, but I'm speaking also to fellow elders, leaders in your church and to your whole church. But the question for us, in what ways are we praying as a church? In what ways Prayer is prayer the way we grow our church. It ought to be. God invites us to be. 
And I think if we will see the, the next point much stronger, much more powerful in the lives of our churches, then prayer will have to find its way again back to this central space of the life of our churches. Because here, here's what happens as a result of this prayer. Point number three, what we see about how the church grows. Supernatural intervention beyond expectation. Here's the thing about the pumpkin plant that I looked at at my friends who I visited. <laughs> they didn't plant the thing. <laughs> it just propped up. I don't even know. They, it was probably just old bits of pumpkin that were discarded in the compost pile and it just took off. They did nothing. They didn't particularly <laughs> look to have pumpkins or a pumpkin plant or a thriving, you know, almost micro-industry of pumpkins, but they just kind of let it rip and let it grow. Uh, I kind of think this is what we will see more of when we pray. We will hear, we will see stories of how God had changed our lives with immense power beyond our expectation for his glory. We will see favourable conditions for others to turn to God. We will see in the church and the life of the church incredibly unity and love. We will see provision for mission. We will see zeal. We will see passion. It is how God might lead your church, might lead my church. He is faithful and we will see him doing stuff that is vastly beyond our expectations. Number four. Sorry, before I move on to number four, I just want to point something out. You might ask yourself, what about James, though? It's great for Peter. God acted, God provided, God broke him out of jail. What about James? You know, James got put to death, Peter got delivered. Did they not pray for James? I believe they did. I believe they did. And so we must balance this whole idea of praying for God's powerful supernatural intervention and working in our lives and in our church with this number one point of hardship. But I do believe that prayer is also the answer and was the answer to the church's grief and confusion over James's death. One of the areas we need God's work in most powerfully is in our Sadness, our grief, our confusion of loss. Prayer is the answer even to that. All right, number four, authenticity. Um, I love the part in the story, and I'll go quick for this one, where this little servant girl named Rhoda comes to this house in the place of Jerusalem. She knocks on the door, love the humour. I see it too. Opens the door. Slams it shut and runs back inside and, you know, Peter just stands outside knocking. And, you know, I almost really want to wonder, why is that in there? Why would you put it in the story if you are preciously restricted as far as content and cost of production in those days? You know, it's, it, it, it begs the question. Well, I think it's because we're presented here with the pumpkin plant as it is. Some pumpkin plants are weird. It's strange. 
It doesn't quite make sense to us, but there's no attempt here to gloss over this story. And if you maybe struggle with this story around, you know, and I don't have time today to really go into the backstory. We're in a series on Acts, so we can do this separately in some sermons, but all of the stuff that happens in Acts that is weird, the miraculous stuff, like Peter's escape with an angel and all that stuff, it just really sounds a bit like myth, like legend, like make-believe. You kind of go, I don't know if this could have really happened. It just sounds all a little bit too fairy ish for me. Not real. Didn't happen. It's a good question to ask. It's a good question to wrestle with. Today is not the time and place for the full answer, but I think, I think there is a clue as to its credibility in this little servant girl called Rhoda, you know? No glossing over. This is how it happened. <laughs> this girl came up. We didn't believe it either because it just seemed too good to be true or so far outside of our frame of expectations. And I think that's why he puts it in there, just as it happened. If you are grappling with God doing stuff in, in, in human life, in your life, in the life of your church, uh, please, uh, small point, but can I just appeal and, and, and ask that you consider that the Bible for its sake doesn't attempt to make things palatable or gloss it over or apply a filter to make it look all, all that good. This is how it happened. I believe it. It's true, it really did happen in that way, and it's presented to us exactly as such. It's authentic. Number five, and I'll summarise before I finish. Uh, godly leadership. Did you notice, notice Peter number seven, in verse 17 motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison? Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. And then he left for another place. This is a bit of a backstory in Acts. Um, the Apostle Peter, from this point, and we're only quite early on in the story of Acts, he kind of vanishes. He pops up again in the Council of Jerusalem in chapter 15. We don't hear from him again. This is the great and mighty Apostle Peter, on whom Jesus built the church, who led the church in Jerusalem up to this point for so many years gone. We don't really know where he went. We suspect from history he was also martyred for his faith. But you know, I think we see something about godly leadership. This is how the church grows. Leaders who don't build egos, leaders who don't try and build legacies, leaders who serve, who love, who give their lives and are quite okay to just vanish from the story of the church or from history and reportedly gave their lives for Jesus. Godly leadership. Church can and will grow under godly leadership. I put this point to you, particularly given the time that you're in as a church. I think in a wonderful way, you have godly leaders. I pray that those leaders will be filled, will be sustained, and will lead you forward until God if he wants to have a minister here, has one here. All right, let me summarise. How did the church grow? Suffering, hardship, prayer, God's intervention and work, leadership, and here's the last one, judgment. Herod, 
we read towards the end what happened to him. Quite a grotesque and horrifying event. I won't go too much into the theme of judgment, simply to say that God has no hesitation to pull out fruitless plants. He has no hesitation to pull out of the way what is holding back the growth of his church. Some of that happens now. Some of that he will do in the end when all judgment and all justice will be meted out perfectly. The church may rest confidently that the judge of all the earth will and can make right every act of persecution that was perpetrated against this church. I think God does this to Herod to give an early sign that that is what he intends to do. We may know that. Maybe it brings comfort, maybe it brings concern, maybe it should spark repentance in us. Nevertheless, we know that the growth and ultimate triumph of God's church will involve his judgment. All right, now let me finish up. These are, these are the points, and I, and I pray that they will be seen and experienced and lived by your church as you go through this next season of your life. That whatever hardships you face will grow you. That you will pray in such ways that will see you grow. That you will see the resurrected Lord Jesus act among you in response to your prayers. The acts are the acts of Jesus. It's the same Jesus who is there who is among you here, who lives that your leaders will grow in godliness and that ultimately we will surrender ourselves to the judgment and justice of God for the sake of his church and the glory of his name. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you intend to grow your church. And thank you that you are sovereign and you can control all things to that end. I do pray for this church. I do pray that it will grow. I do pray that it would completely look to you, surrender itself to you, embrace its hardships, knowing that you will use it for their good, that this will be a church who prays faithfully, intently. Father, that your wonderful provision will be given in all things for them. Pray for their leaders. Pray that you'll raise up new leaders, further leaders, next leaders. And that you'll sustain those in leadership already now. Lord, we thank you that you're a God who do care about, who does care about justice. We fear it, and yet we're grateful that you will enact it if, when, and how you see best. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.